again. I'm thankful by God's grace and providence that grants us the privilege to be here this evening. I recognize it is a wonderful privilege to be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and it is also uh, a great responsibility. James says in James 3 and verse 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. I'm sorry, I'm giving you the wrong verse. My brethren, he says, be not many masters, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Masters are teachers. And so there is a great responsibility to teach God's word faithfully. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here uh, these few days. In Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, the psalmist said, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. These passages emphasize the idea of the ascension of Christ and ultimately his uh, coronation. When Jesus with his apostles went to the Mount of Olives, he spoke to them and blessed them and then was received up into heaven. And as he was received up into heaven, there were two men that appeared in white clothing that said to the men, Why, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing? This same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner from heaven as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so Jesus ascended back into heaven. We talked this morning about uh, the cross of Christ and his horrible death. But we recognize that prior to Jesus' ascension into heaven, for 40 days he showed himself alive by his passion, uh, after his passion by many infallible proofs, Luke tells us in, Luke, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And after he had done this and after he had told the apostles, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. We then, of course, know and read further how that Jesus ascends back into heaven. And it may be the thought of some that Jesus' work was done, that he had finished his duty and his responsibilities. And some have the idea that Jesus is not maybe doing anything now. I want to talk with you this evening for a few minutes about what uh, followed his ascension and coronation. Of course, we recognize that when Jesus left this earth, there was still work that he did, and he's doing. Of course, he is still saving men. In Matthew 1 and 21, we read there, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
when Jesus came to this earth, he came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 and verse 10. But every time an individual hears the gospel, believes it, repents of his sins, confesses his faith in Christ and is immersed in the water for the remission of his sins, the Lord saves him. And what a blessed privilege that is. And the Bible tells us in Acts 2 and 47, uh, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so the Lord adds those that are saved, those who have been baptized to the body of Christ. And so what is Jesus doing now? He's saving people. He's saving individuals who hear the gospel initially and obey it. And he's saving those who continue to walk in the light. In 1 John chapter 1, and verse 7, But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So as we continue to walk in the light of God's word, the blood of Jesus Christ continues to uh, wash away our sins, forgive us of our sins. What a blessed privilege that is. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verses 9 and 10, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For he says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, or because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now some may have the idea that that means universal salvation. He's the Savior of all men. And the idea is, he is the Savior of all men potentially. He died for all men. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, who for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He died for all. But specially, that is particularly, is he is the Savior of those who are obedient to him. I think that's the idea in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So what is he doing now? He's still saving people. He's still wanting people to be saved. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is Jesus doing now? He ascended back into heaven, he was crowned king of kings. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But he is serving as our high priest. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. The writer says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider means to give attention to, to study carefully. It is good for us to give some thought to the fact that Jesus is our high priest. He's not sitting there on the throne doing nothing. He's serving as our high priest. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. I like this next verse. 
Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of his grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a beautiful verse? To recognize that when we're in need, we can approach our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. What a wonderful thought that is. And as our high priest, Jesus, of course, like the high priest under the old law, the, the law of Moses, he made atonement for our sins. In the Old Testament, the Levitical system had the high priest to one day out of the year, the seventh month, the tenth day of the month, he was to put on the garments of the high priest, he was to kill a bullock and carry the blood into the most holy place and there sprinkle it before the mercy seat and upon the mercy seat for his own sins and for the sins of his family. He then was to go out Two goats had been selected. One was the scapegoat, and the other was to be the one that was offered. The one that was to be slain was killed, and the blood was then carried by the high priest into the most holy place, and there sprinkled upon and before the mercy seat seven times for the sins of Israel. Now often we think about Jesus having died on the cross, but in a figurative sense, the atonement was not finished at that point. He, in a figurative sense, carried his blood into heaven there to make atonement for our sins. What a wonderful thought that is, that Jesus made, made atonement for our sins by his death on the cross and then taking, in a figurative sense, his blood into heaven itself. He is the high priest over the house of God. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, and in verse 19, the writer says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice he says, a high priest over the house of God. Well, we're told in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 that Christ is, the, uh, is over the house of God. But Christ has a son over his own house. Whose house are we? That house is his church. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said there, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and the ground of the truth. Christ is the high priest over the house of God, and the house is the church of God. He is not the high priest over those who are not in the house of God. And thus, we see that he makes intercession for those who are in his house, those who are in his church. What a wonderful thought that is as well. Consider also, in reference to the fact that he is our high priest, he is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. He ascended back into heaven in order to reign on his throne. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29, in that sermon that was recorded of, uh, Peter, that Peter preached on that occasion, the first 
Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ. Peter says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and that his sepulcher is with us on this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Now notice that. He raised up Christ for this purpose, to sit on his throne. He's seeing this before, speaking of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, describes Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look with me at another passage in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth, uh, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many, uh, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a, a vesture dipped in blood, and, the name, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in uh, fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Acts 2 and verse 36, again, as Peter is uh, coming to a conclusion point in that sermon, though he has more to say, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The word Lord indicates the idea of master. The word Lord indicates someone who has power or control over another. And if Jesus is the Lord of my life, then he has power and control over my life. So he hath made him both Lord and Christ. And Christ is the idea of the anointed one. That's what it means. Under the old law, under the old system, there were three different offices or officers that were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three. He's prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he has said enough. As priest, he has done enough. As king, he has power enough. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so what is he doing? Well, he's ruling. He has all authority. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, All authority, all power is given in me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even and in the world. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ has authority and power not only over the church, 
but also over the world in general. Some have the idea that people are not amenable or answerable to the law of Christ if they're not in Christ, if they're not in the church, if they're not in a covenant relationship with Christ. That's false. Because the gospel is for all, and Jesus said, I have, Jesus said, I have authority over all, the heaven and earth, and all men must submit to his, his will and his authority. Whether or not they accept it or not, whether or not they recognize it or not, even if they're ignorant of it, they're still obligated to Christ. We have an obligation to carry the gospel to them. They have an obligation to obey it. And all men are amenable to the law of Christ, even in reference to the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So he was raised up to sit on his throne. He's reigning now as king of kings and lord of lords. He became a king and priest at the same time. Turn back in your Bibles to the Old Testament. There's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, that uh, indicates this very thing, that tells us that he would become king and priest at the same time. In Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall uh, bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. At the same time Christ is priest, he's going to be king. At the same time he's king, he's going to be, uh, going to be priest. And uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, that he cannot be a priest on earth. And so therefore he cannot be a king on earth. In fact, when we turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we note that when the end comes, that is when the end of the world comes, that he's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It says, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things he are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. But if you back up to verse 24, notice that it says, Then come the end. The end of what? Well, there are some who have the idea that means A.D. 70. Well, let's think about that a minute. Then come the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Think, thinking of the A.D. 70 advocates is that when the, the Lord comes again, the kingdom's going to come in completeness. That is not complete yet. But this verse tells us that when, if it's a reference to the end of time or the end of, uh, or the coming of A.D. 70 uh, and the end of Judaism, that he's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father. He's going to put down all rule and all authority. And therefore, if that's the case, then he has no authority. He is not ruling now with all authority. He's a king without any authority. That's where it places him. If that theory is right. But it's not. The very idea here of shall have delivered up is a word that means to surrender. That is to yield up. And the expression here in verse 24 where it says, He shall, put, shall have put down all rule. The expression put down here means to uh, 
in a sense, to fire or to remove from power. That's the idea. Some have the mistaken notion that when the Lord comes again, the kingdom uh, will be set up. Well, the kingdom's already here. And when he comes again, he's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father. And so he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's, he's reigning now. And all of us must submit to him. What is Jesus doing? He's saving men. He's our savior. He is our high priest. He is our king. And he is our mediator. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, Paul said to Timothy, There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator is a go-between. He is someone who can represent both parties. Where you have a division between two parties, or you have a division in a party, and they split up. You need someone that can represent both sides to bring the two sides together. A mediator. Jesus is the perfect mediator. Mary could never be the perfect mediator. Jesus could be the perfect mediator and is because he is God and he was God. In John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So the word became flesh, we're told in verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus can represent God because he is God. But he also can represent man because he was man. He was fully man. And fully God. That is beyond my comprehension and I'm sure beyond yours. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 Who can comprehend the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? But because he was a man, he can represent us. If it had been someone like Mary that was going to be our mediator, we could say to God, you don't understand my situation. You don't know how it was for me on earth. But remember, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin, Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, yet he did not yield. And he understands. He understands our troubles and our trials and our tribulations. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Jesus understands. No one else may understand, but Jesus does. And aren't we thankful that he is our mediator? And that he is our high priest. And that he makes intercession for us. There is a wonderful statement or some wonderful verses in Hebrews chapter 7, 
23 through 27. Hebrews 7, 23 through 27. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, notice, this man, notice the contrast, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Jesus makes intercession for us. Isn't that a wonderful thought? There's a difference between the mediator and the intercessor. You and I can make intercession for individuals, as in the case of the little children that Jim was telling us about a moment ago. We can, we can make intercession on behalf of the family uh, in reference to that situation or in reference to uh, the loss of a loved one, as has been uh, announced today. Uh, we can make intercession for the family in their loss. The Bible teaches us that, and Jesus also makes intercession as our high priest. And in Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, 34 rather, Paul said, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So Jesus is making intercession for us. That's a wonderful thought. He is our mediator. And he, he is our advocate. In 1 John 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate means properly summoned, called to one side, especially called to one's aid. Hence, one who pleads another's cause before a judge, a pleader, a counsel for defense, legal assistance, an advocate. All of us need a counsel for defense. And he's speaking here to members of the church. These words were not spoken to those who are outside of Christ. In order to have Christ as our advocate, a counsel for the defense, legal aid, if you please, we have to be in Christ. One of the spiritual blessings, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. I know a man who was arrested and put in jail for a false charge. He knew it was false. He knew as well as he knew the difference between night and day that it was false. And so he thought that he could stand before the judge and defend himself before the judge. Bad mistake. Costly mistake. He didn't have anyone to defend him. We, on the other hand, are guilty of sin. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us need a counsel for defense. We need an advocate, someone to plead our case to our Heavenly Father. 
and that is Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 6. Beginning in verse 16. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. <clears throat> for verily, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This passage tells us that Christ is our forerunner. That's a military term. Interesting word. It is reference to a reconnoiter or a spy who goes before the army to scout out the situation. He acts as a spy or a scout, a light-armed soldier. It is one who comes in advance to, place, to a place whether the rest will follow. And so Jesus is our forerunner. And what is he doing? He's not just scouting the place, heaven. He's preparing it. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus spoke those words to his apostles, but in principle it applies to us. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And Jesus has gone before to prepare that place for us. He is our forerunner. And ultimately, he will be our judge. Paul stood on, the, on Mars Hill in Acts 17, in verse 30 and 31, we're told. And he said, in the times of this sickness, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all, universally, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us, individually, will give an account for the things done in his body, whether they be good or bad. That's a sobering thought. And so what is Christ doing? He ascended back into heaven. He is saving men today, those who are obedient to the gospel. He is our high priest if we're in the Lord's church, in the Lord's house. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is our mediator. He is our advocate. He is our forerunner. And he shall be our judge. The question that comes to you and me is, am I in Christ? Have I been obedient to the gospel? If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to obey the gospel and become a member of the Lord's church. 
by hearing, believing, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Christ, and being immersed into water for the remission of your sins. When you do that, the Lord will add you to his church. The greatest thing that you can ever do is become a member of the Lord's church, wherein all spiritual blessings are found. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you are, but you have been unfaithful, you've brought shame on the church in a public way, we encourage you to repent, confess your sin, and pray. Simon was told by Peter, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we encourage you to come while together we stand and sing.